Hi, my name is Barbara Wangoi. I'm from Nairobi, Kenya, and this episode is brought to you by MPW Memberships. Did you know that as a member of MPW, you get access to weekly community feedback on your tracks? This is an excellent resource if you're feeling stuck on how to move forward with your song and need a few pointers to help you finish more music. Get access to this feature and so many more using the link musicproductionforwomen.com slash membership. Uh, this is MPW, 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 the podcast with your host, Zyla Aria. Cool. A podcast about music, music production for the everyday musician, where we learn from experienced studio engineers and each other. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the MPW podcast. I'm your host, Zylo Aria, and today I am chatting to Bindu Danok. So Bindu is a lawyer who specializes in music and entertainment law, intellectual property and commercial contracts, and is also an author of the book Note by Note, Introduction to Music Law, and has her own podcast called MusicWise. So great to have you on this episode, Bindu. Well, thank you for having me, Zylo. <laughs> Firstly, how do you find time for all of the things that you do? Can I just ask? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, really. Just make time, I guess, and prioritize. And and it's it's one of these things where, like, your job is also your hobby, I yeah. think. So, yeah, I mean, there's obviously time in the evenings uh, and in the weekends to do to do the podcasts and, and, and do the writing and you know, just keep busy. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. That's some great time management skills right there. Because <laughs> I think sometimes <laughs> when you're, when you're kind of passion is what you do as well, it can sometimes everything feels like work and then you don't really feel like doing anything, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And true. It's like sometimes you just never sh- uh, shut down or shut off. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that, that's, that's the tricky part. Uh, but then, yeah, you need to just make sure that you have these moments to yourself where you can actually wind down and take a moment for yourself and uh, recalibrate. Yes, yes. So necessary. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Absolutely. Sure. So tell me a bit about your journey into music law and how did you get there? Did, did you start off in music and then end up in law or other way around? Yeah, I did turn to the dark side. <laughs> absolutely did. Uh, well, actually, I always played music as a, as a child. I played piano uh-huh. and uh, and keyboards afterwards. And then I got into synthesizers and I thought, oh, that's interesting. And all the sounds that you could make with it. And then through synthesizer, I started reading Sound on Sound, the, the British magazine. And then I got into audio engineering. And I thought, oh, that's very nice. It's things wow. that you can do with, with the <laughs> recording equipment and, and, and effects, etc. And then I thought, um, after I finished college in Ghent in Belgium, that's where I grew up. I thought, Christ, I do have this uh, diploma now. But if I have to do this for like 40 years, I'm not going to be a happy camper. So... <laughs> I would like to do something with music. So I went to SAE in Rotterdam. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I completed the audio engineering degree there. And then I got a job offer uh, in Denmark uh, for TC Electronic. Worked for TC in Denmark for a little bit. And then nice. around yeah, early two, 2000s, of course, the whole, whole music industry kind of collapsed. And my partner at the time was Dutch, so I moved to the Netherlands. And I thought, with all of the things that I've seen about music, I thought, and I always had wanted to 
to also study law. I was good at languages and I was good at, and I was very interested in law school. But then people said when I was 18, ah, law is boring, don't do that. You're good at languages, study that. So I did. But who said that? To, uh, oh, you know, student advisors at the time. Really? I feel like yeah. that sounds like opposite advice to what most student advisors say, but... Yeah, well, cool. <laughs> those ones did. And uh, so I did I did listen. But um, yeah. yeah, when I moved to the Netherlands, I, I thought, you know what, I'm still going to do law school. So I went to Leiden University, did law school part-time, worked next to it. And then I thought, you know what, being older, starting law school, I knew I wanted to do music and entertainment. So I just focused on intellectual property. Yeah, and that's how I got started. Wow. Oh, my gosh. That sounds like lots of studying in so many different areas, which is cool, actually. Oh, I hate studying, honestly. I was the most... (laughs) (laughs) No one would believe it. (laughs) I I know, I know. People are like, you always like have like the best grades, etc. Yeah, but I hate studying, honestly. Ask my mom and dad. They will will confirm. (laughs) Wow. Wow. So once you finished your degree in in, uh, law and specializing in intellectual property, how did you go about kind of entering into the music industry? It wasn't really that much of um, a big master plan so to speak. But it was more like I, I, being, being an ex-SAE student, I started teaching while I was still studying. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, talking to students and seeing their agreements, etc. You kind of start building your network already and that's and because I was so focused I was like yeah this is what I want to do I mean I have the musical uh, background and knowledge and I have the law uh, background and knowledge so I want to combine those two and being like hyper focused I think and and working on that building your network writing for magazines that is how I got started yeah and then a few clients took the plunge and 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 came with me and that's how you how you effectively get started Wow. So are you a freelancer then? Yeah, I did start at um, Big Law and then went to niche firms. And then four years ago, I started my own firm. Amazing. Oh, that's very cool. Very cool. So yeah, I was really excited for this episode because I feel like there's just so many things that as musicians and producers, you're like, uh, you know, I'm doing this thing, but I feel like I might get into trouble for it, but I don't know, should I do it anyway? Or then just completely not do it. And, and, and yeah, I, I get asked a lot of questions about these things. So now I can direct them all to you. So <laughs> I guess the first thing I wanted to talk about is, um, kind of introducing, uh, us to copyright. So when you think of a, a piece of music, then, from what I've heard, there's two kind of main aspects of copyright that you have to think about. Can you define those two for me in two sentences? <laughs> when I read that question, especially the end of it, um, like summarize in two sentences, I was like, okay. <laughs> this is always a challenge. People don't always do it, but you know. <laughs> yeah. um, well, I'll, I'll give it a try at least. It depends on where you are in the world. In common law countries as the US and, and the UK, uh, the system is a little bit different than continental Europe, where we have the the, the the continental laws, so to speak, to keep it simple. But under common law, the sound recording and the composition is protected under one copyright, whereas in continental Europe, there's also 
a composition with or without lyrics and a sound recording, but copyright in continental Europe only protects the composition with or without lyrics. And the neighboring rights, which is, I always call it the flip side of two, two, the same coin, is protected under the Neighboring Rights Act. Right. So there's one part of it which is kind of the composition of the music, mm -hmm. so that the uh, arrangement and the instrumental and that kind of thing. Is that one and then the kind of lyrics and melody is another one? Is that what you mean? It is a part of that. That's not what I meant, but that, that's part of it, yeah. I always like give the example. Uh, think of um, Bach back in his day sitting behind his piano. He was He would write his music with paper, and pencil mm -hmm. and 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 a, and a pencil, so that would be the composition as we know it today. Now, of course, we do everything in our in our uh, DAWs, and we are able to compose and listen back to the composition at the same time because we record and play back at the same time. Now, Bach wasn't, of course, capable of doing that, but the copyright system in itself came from a time where there was no recording equipment and at least not recording equipment so readily available at everybody's fingertips and laptops. Mm -hmm. So that is why um, the composition and lyrics are actually protected under one copyright. But it's true, it's, it's, um, you can separate them because you can exploit or use the composition as a separate entity and then also lyrics, you can use those in various uh, ways. So yes, mm -hmm. they do make up one song uh, together, but you can actually exploit them or use them, them yeah, separately. Yeah. Cool. So then that's the one side. Yeah. And then is the other side the actual recording of the track? Yeah, exactly. What we call the track is usually the recording of the performance of the composition with or without lyrics. Okay, cool. So just to summarize then, I guess one is the actual composition. So say the, the sheet music of your bark in this yeah. example. And then the second side is the recording, which is the physical recording of yeah. um, playing that track. Exactly. So there's two, two sides. Yeah. Okay, cool. That that's That's a good place to start. <laughs> and as artists, you know, to register your track, as something that you own. People say that uh, you should register it with your local PRO. Is it a performing rights organization? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh. What does that mean exactly? So I remember when I first um, started uploading these, it, it didn't even ask for the recording. It just asked for the song name and the length, I think it was. How do you actually generate revenues from putting it up in, in this database, I guess? That's a whole lot of questions in one sentence. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. But, but, but let's take one step back. The first question as to how do I prove that it is my song, my composition, yeah. that I made it? That's a separate question than how do I make money of it and the registration at the PRO or Collective Rights Management Organization. And the first part is, of course, how do you prove that the song is yours? Because if we would like make, make a, a track right now, mm -hmm. Or I play you my track and, and you copy it and throw it online tonight, uh, then how do I prove that I made it? If you have released it on your SoundCloud under your name, well, then of course, yeah. copyright starts or uh, exists up upon the moment actually you create something. There are some requirements uh, to adhere to copyright. Originality is one of them, of course, but originality is not the requirement that something has to be new. 
I mean, with the musical tradition, it would be also quite impossible to write something that's never been done before. So the legal originality is something else than the what we understand as original. So, but as soon as you make something, so as soon as I've made my composition, even if it's not released, even if it's not registered at, at a PRO, it is mine and the copyright exists simply because I've created it. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. Of course, then you will say, yeah, but how do you prove that? Well, then, of course, I have to like uh, be able to show my DAW sessions and um, be able to prove that on this day, the 25th of June, I made this track and uh, that's it. The registration at the PRO doesn't actually prove that you've made it, just actually um, allows for collective rights management organizations to um, collect money that was earned worldwide mostly with the use of your composition. So let's say that you want to perform my, uh, my piece of music tonight somewhere, and then you will have to say to uh, PRS in this case, uh, oh, I played uh, Bindu's track, and then PRS will make a, make a note in their database and then that is the way that they will collect money for the performance of my song. Mm -hmm. So that, those are two separate things. So proving that you created it and the registration is purely at a PRO. It's purely to collect monies with exploitation, we call that. And exploitation is simply the general or legal word for um, use of music. Cool. Thank you. That was a really good summary, actually. I feel like I understood that a bit better and also understand how I asked four questions in one pretty much. <laughs> okay. Um, but actually on that note, so you mentioned if I were to play one of your songs live, then I would um, send a set list or whatever to my PRO and then they would match that with you to give you some royalties on that. So then I guess this is kind of veering off track, but... Um, they will only be able to match things that are reported to them. Is that right? Yes, exactly. So what you see in many, many occasions is that people all don't register their tracks or their compositions with a PRO. Yeah. Uh, and the same goes for neighboring rights or uh, for the recordings. And the recordings, um, you can uh, register those at PPL in, in the UK. Mm -hmm. But it's true. Some people don't register it. And then it's quite impossible to just call every radio station, call every venue and ask yeah. them, did you play, did you perhaps play my track or did somebody play my track? That is why collective rights management organizations such as a PRS or a PPL exist. Because for a large number of people, they can collect worldwide every sort of income. Well, not every, but a lot of types of income for their members. Mm -hmm. So if I'm a member at PRS and PPL, I know that on my behalf, they will collect the money for all of the tracks that I've registered with them. But then, yeah, I have to register because no registration is leaving money on the table. Okay, cool. Cool. Thank you. Um, so the next thing I wanted to move to is as a music producer, you work with an artist. So say an artist comes to you with a track and they want that produced, you know, when does the producer become a composer of the track as well? That's a good question. And, and it's, it's quite a controversial question, especially in the Netherlands, because um, 
there's case law in the Netherlands in which um, the, the Dutch courts actually said engineers and producers, they're not creatives. They just do technical mumbo jumbo. And uh, that is not a creation. So hence, no copyright, no neighboring rights for them. As engineers, of course, we are like, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah. Have you heard a demo track? And did you also listen to the finished mastered uh, track as well? And then you can see that, that, that an engineer uh, can actually make or break a song. Mm -hmm. So it is, of course, creative. Yes, you use uh, technology and tools and, and software and hardware to, to create something. But it is no different than uh, a painter, for example, who uses a canvas and certain types of pencils mm -hmm. to uh, make that creation. Yeah, and you can then say, uh, is the creator of the pencil uh, a creator? Nope, he's not. But that is not the role of the, the producer or the engineer. That's That would be the Neves and the SSLs of this world. Of mm. course, they are not the creator. But uh, the engineer and the producer can be. But mm -hmm. it really depends on their factual contribution to the song. For example, if um, you, you're producing my song, my mm -hmm. composition, and I say, hey, um, this is my song, and you say, well, let's swap around a few things. Let's change the bridge, let's do the intro there, um, let's change the structure. Also, I, I'm not really so fond of your bass line, let's change that. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you have creative input. Mm -hmm. And then it depends on what that creative input is, if you can actually be uh, considered a composer or not. Cool. So I guess if there's like a singer-songwriter taking a track that's like a guitar and a voice mm. and then going to a producer who's then creating all the other elements, then they're likely to be a composer as well and they could ask for a part of the composition rights. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If, if, if you're a guitar player, a singer-songwriter, you go into the studio with your guitar and your voice, but the engineer uh, and producer, they play all the other instruments and arrange them, yeah, then of course they that contribution is factually that they've added to the composition. Mm. Um, certainly true. And also, even if you don't have a practical or uh, factual contribution to the song, you could also decide on the basis of an agreement that you become a songwriter on the track. Think of Timberland mm -hmm. on Justin Timberlake's tracks. Think of Rick Rubin on so many tracks. He's yeah. usually credited as a composer. Has he played instruments? Maybe, maybe not. But then it's it's the result of in a negotiation and a contractual agreement. So it kind of twofold. So it can be factual or it can be contractual. Okay, cool, cool. So that is the composition side. So if we look at the other side, which is the recording, then do they own part of that as well? Again, it depends. Um, if they performed the instruments and recorded, uh, then they are, in that sense, session musicians. For example, there are definitely producers that perform a lot of instruments themselves. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking um, Dave Grohl, for example, and and Rick Rubin, for that sense, as as a good example as well. He plays lots of lots of instru instruments uh, himself as well. And then if he is the one playing the instrument, which is recorded ends up on the final recording, yeah, then he's a session musician, so um, he gets a uh, neighboring rights um, share. Okay, yeah, unless maybe you pay them for their session time and then... Yeah, yeah, and then... exactly, yeah, and just buy, buy them out, yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay, cool, and I actually saw recently someone put a post on Facebook, I think, they were saying that 
their mixing engineer was also asking for a part of their copyright. Do you think there is a scenario where mixing and mastering engineers can claim copyright? It really depends on the status of the engineer. You see it quite often with the big guys, of course. Mm -hmm. And then how that is, it's, it's like a small percentage that is paid from the composer's share to the engineer. Uh, but again, it, it comes down to their factual uh, contribution or to the contractual agreement if they can actually, uh, if they're actually entitled to get a piece. Yeah. Okay. Cool. But it's it's not uncommon. Cool. I interesting because there was a lot of kind of negative comments on this saying, oh, this is crazy. I've never heard of this. So it's interesting to hear that it's, it's not actually uncommon. So yeah, something to consider for sure, for sure. So another thing is as producers, especially electronic producers, sampling is a big thing that pretty much everyone does in some way, shape or form. And when do you have to kind of get permission to use samples and is there like a, a, a thing of like up to three seconds is okay or, or any? Uh, yeah, I, I can see that's not. But, yeah, tell me about that. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> um, no. Big, no, no. You, you can't use anything unless you have permission. But I, but it's true. It's it's one of those myths, right, that, that, that have been living on just like the monster yeah. of Loch Ness, I think, <laughs> uh, that you can sample two or six seconds or four bars. Um, all, all of all of the above, not true. Uh, <laughs> so no, you can't use anything un unless you have it cleared, because that's also the point of intellectual property rights, which is the collective noun for all uh, rights that protect creation, such as, such as uh, music and and, for example, copyrights. Copyright is an exclusive right, so it creates a temporary monopoly, which says that oh, so you Zylo, you've you've made this composition, um, you have that copyright. So for the duration of copyright, you're the only person that can decide what happens with it. So if I then sample your song, but you have that temporary monopoly, I'm infringing upon your rights. And then it doesn't matter if it is two seconds, six seconds, or three hours. Mm, okay. Always get permission. There is, of course, something else that you have to be aware of. Uh, in soft synths, and in any other synthesizer for that matter, you can buy sample packs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yep. use sounds. But that is a different kind of sampling because then you also use the sounds that come uh, in, 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 the, um, uh, in the soft synth, for example, mm -hmm. but uh, taken into account and, and assuming <laughs> that you buy the, the soft synth, you also get a license to use those samples. Mm -hmm. And then it is obviously permitted to use the samples in, in that particular soft synth. But if I want to sample a commercial track that I do not own and that I have not written or uh, co-composed, etc., um, or recorded, no, big no-no. Uh, I have to ask permission. Think of the, the recent Kraftwerk case, which was uh, the European Court of Justice actually in, in uh, last July mm -hmm. 2019. Uh, finally, after 20 years of uh, battling it out in court, yeah. Kraftwerk got, um, got their decision and it seems that uh, the European Court of Justice actually says, well, you know what, those intellectual property rights, they need to be respected. And uh, if you want to sample, you need a proper license. Mm -hmm. That that was uh, the bottom line of 20 years of battling in court. Wow. Okay. I mean, I don't know the background of that case, but um, 
from what I'm getting from you is it's definitely a no and there is no kind of getting around it or using small Mm. bits or anything like that. So that's, yeah, very handy to know. So on the other side, do you, is there a way that you can safeguard your own creations from being sampled? Yeah, the quick answer is no, because most of the time you won't know. Um, And there's no technology that allows you, such as, for example, a watermark which would um, prevent anyone from using the track without a proper license or even a license key or a dongle, etc. All those things that we've been using in the past. Of course, when somebody's using your track, such as what exactly happened in the Kraftwerk case, it was a German hip-hop artist that used about two seconds of a rhythmical riff from a Kraftwerk song. Right. And then, of course, the interesting thing is yeah, they've used that there was no way for Kraftwerk to know. But that song became an, a, an enormous hit song in Germany. Right. And then, of course, they found out. Mm. And, and, and also interesting about this case was that the European Court of Justice actually said in that case that sample, a sample could be um, a quotation. And a quotation, for a quotation, you don't need permission from the rights holders. So that, that's an interesting uh, thing. We, I always said that it was possible, but the law wasn't that far yet. But now it is obviously the, the European Court of Justice that said it would be possible. So, but, but still, it is not a safe bet to say, oh, well, I'm sampling without permission. It's a quotation. Uh, that's going to get you in trouble. Right. Okay. All right. Well, um, yeah, because I was, I was talking to an artist on the last episode uh, who creates sample packs and she was saying that sometimes she's heard her samples on other sample packs just kind of being ripped off and, and changed into something else yeah. and and she's just like, it's a bit annoying but, you know, what can you do unless it, something really big happens out of it, it? It's maybe not worth trying to create a fight over that. So, um, yeah, it's a shame there's not really a way to, to safeguard. It's there's not a uh, not a way to prevent it, but of course you can enforce your rights. I mean, if you've created it, and that that's the thing I think where artists in general are a bit too easygoing. I mm. think mm-hmm. also because they think like, ah, if you want to go to court, nobody wants to go to court. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it, it it you're not like storming into court straight away. Usually you start with notifying people and sending them a cease and desist letter and say, hey, I've noticed you've you've been using my sample. And would you please uh, immediately stop doing that? Mm. Um, and that is something that is uh, usually very effective and doesn't cost too much money. Mm. Oh, okay. And then, yeah, yeah, cease and desist letters are, are, are um, definitely an accessible tool for anyone to enforce their rights. And then um, if the infringer, uh, you can also um, hold them liable for any damages. So you can ask for your legal fees back and, 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 and some damages as well. You don't have to immediately storm into court. Right. Yeah, I think we all all kind of go into these big Hollywood movies and what we kind of see in the media and just assume that it's it's this massive, mm. expensive thing all the time. So it's good to know that it doesn't have to be that case all the time. So, no, and, yeah. and, and also with most digital platforms, they are obliged um, to have notice and takedown uh, procedures um, you can also file uh, a copyright complaint with most uh, platforms nowadays. So that would be your first step. And then send cease and desist letter to the person uh, actually infringing your rights. But I honestly think that 
that artists should do that a lot more because too many people on the other side of the industry actually think they actually count on the inactivity of creators. Oh my and gosh. They actually, yeah, they actually count <laughs> on, on the fact that artists are very wary to get into legal battles. Mm. But at the same time, so, so it, it's a very calculated bet for them. And it's true. Most of the time, people do get away with infringement. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting thought, actually. And, and something I think is something for a lot of us to think about going forward. So, uh, yeah, that's good. So the next thing I wanted to talk about was remixing. And now this is something I've got lots of questions on from producers, from DJs. So what can you use when you're creating a remix and what can't you use and when do you need permission for that? It's the same as sampling, and it's the same with everything. Copyrights, neighboring rights, all intellectual property rights that create exclusivity for the rights holders. So if you want to make a remix, then you're using somebody else's composition and somebody else's recording. Okay, maybe some some tracks and, and some stems and some others you won't. But nonetheless, you need, because when you, when you are remixing, you're using somebody's composition, so you need permission from all the songwriters. And you need permission from the master right owners for the recording. So always you need permission. Otherwise, uh, any remix will be, any remix without permission uh, is an infringement. Is that even when you're not making any money from it? If it's just yes, up? yes, that's a good. Again, that's a great that you mentioned that because that is usually when people say like, uh, and you see it on YouTube a lot, of on or on SoundCloud, and then it says like, um, no infringement intended, and then I'm like, hey, it makes me chuckle sometimes because you're like, yeah, that's that's great uh, that you have such noble intentions, but <laughs> but copyright and intellectual property rights are in in that sense rather black and white. You either have the permission or you don't. And whether you intend to make an infringement and whether you make money or not, um, whether it's purely for promotional use, you can't use anything. Wow, this is so interesting because I feel like I see remixes everywhere. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, on, on every single platform. So when would you get into trouble for that? Uh, that's, yeah, good question. Yeah. Well, the thing is, of course, when you look at platforms such as SoundCloud and, and as YouTube, I think it's fair enough to say that the bulk of the content on, on user-generated platforms is simply infringing. But then people also sometimes say, yeah, but, on, you, but you've put it on the internet, uh, your track's available on the internet, so you cannot, you cannot um, enforce your rights anymore. That is, um, how do you say it in proper English? That is untrue. <laughs> that was that was um, nicely said. Um, <laughs> but but um, yeah, so so when do you get in trouble? For example, when when your remix becomes a hit and somebody picks it up and a label wants to pick it up, then you can get in, get into trouble. Some people will say, "Oh, I'm I'm uh, I'm flattered," but other people will say, "Yeah, but uh, you have no uh, permission. I'm taking it down," and they're they're fully entitled to do so. Mm. But it, it, look at Prince, me, he rest in peace, obviously, mm-hmm. his purple highness. But he was the kind of person who would take down everything that was really? used without permission. Every single thing. Yeah. And then other artists, well, of course, think of all, all the co- covers that people are making on YouTube. That was my qu- next question, actually, on covers. So 
then I guess covers are taking the composition copyright of the song. Mm-hmm. So again, that's something that's not allowed, but there are some, you know, YouTube uh, channels which are just completely based on that. How does that work? And they're, and they're quite big as well. Yeah. Normally, if you make a cover, you need uh, permission from, from the PRO. But what happens nowadays with content ID systems, those are the technology that run behind uh, YouTube and any other DSP. But YouTube, for example, then sees whose song it is and it detects whose song it is. Or as the owner, I can say, wait a minute, that's my song. And then I can say, well, the revenue comes to me. And that's why you sometimes see under covers licensed by publisher and that's why that, that that is because the publishers have claimed that particular song. Right. Okay. So, but how is that different to putting up a remix, or is it the same? A remix is, of course, um, uh, is is you use the master right as well. Right. And okay. then yeah. it is, it, yeah. It could also be claimed by by content ID systems and by the labels who own it, etc. That is true. And then that would be the the less the, the least painful way to do it. But yeah, again, when that remix becomes um, a big hit, then people will have an incentive to take it down and then sue you for damages. So you said that you could talk to a PRO to get permission. So can you like email your PRO to get permission or or what's the easiest way to get permission, would you say? And the easiest way is, is to go through the PRO. Most PROs offer licenses now online, so you can just fill, in, fill out a form and say what kind of use that you need, and then you, get, you, you fill the, the form out and you get the invoice, you pay it, and you're done. It's actually that simple. Wow. But it depends on the use, of course. But when it's more complicated use, then maybe you have to get in touch and then it make you customize license. And and for some things, you have to go through uh, the publisher or uh, through the label. Uh, but let's not get into detail yeah. about this. <laughs> it, will, it will mess with people's heads. We don't want that. Yeah. But basically, <laughs> the, the first thing where you would look to get permission is go to the PRO website. Right. Uh, check the check the title database, um, who are the songwriters. Then usually in, in such a title database, you also find who the publishers are. So you can see who all the rights holders are and then take it from there. And then your PRO will tell you if you need to contact the publisher or the label directly. Right. Okay. And you mentioned before about, so if you're doing a cover of a song, you're using the, the composition, but not the recording. So mm-hmm. if you get some revenue from that, from YouTube um, streams, let's say, and part of that goes to the composers. Would you, would it still be okay for you to make money of the recording of it? Well, if if you want to record it, um, let's say that you want to do a cover on on your EP or album, then you definitely need um, uh, the license through the PRO. And then you also need the mechanical license to, to be able to record it. But usually with covers, if you do covers, usually people, the rights holders will negotiate 100% copyright for, uh, for the original writers. Fascinating. Fascinating. So I think that kind of covers most of the general things that I wanted to talk about uh, without going into too much depth, which I'm sure you know we could have gone into. So thank you for that. Um, but another thing I wanted to ask you, so I was reading the book by Don uh, Passman, uh, which is all you need to know about the music business. And one of the things that he says uh, or advice that he gives to 
musicians is the first thing before you find a manager, before you find anyone else, find a music lawyer. Why do you think he said that? Not just because he's a music lawyer himself as well, oh. but because it's it's uh, it's the correct order. Because let, let's assume that you say, well, hey, um, I, I've signed a management agreement, and then you go find a lawyer, and then your lawyer says to you, well, that's great, Silo, but did you know that this and this and this was in your management agreement? And maybe you've teamed up with the wrong uh, manager. So for that reason, and to protect yourself, your lawyer is the one who can protect you and who will independently um, protect your best interest. And of course, I mean, there's obviously good managers around. There's also less great managers around. Mm-hmm. And same thing with any every other person that is around the composer and around the artist, of course. But the lawyer usually has a good network and, and experience and knows people in the industry and can vet them for you or with you and then see how to build your team around you. So it's it's really um, to protect yourself. And it's true, it's always an investment. Um, lawyers don't, are, are not for free, but it's like you will build a house, right? You don't build a house without a foundation any, uh, either or without an architect. You could, but you'll end up with a sandcastle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. But um, I, I remember when I was reading that, I felt, uh, this was quite a few years ago, and I just felt a bit silly, like, going up to a music lawyer and being like, Mm. hey, this is me, I'm not actually doing anything big at all at the moment, but I was told to find one of you. Like, how do you actually have that conversation and what makes it appropriate and what is expected from the lawyer's side? Like, is that an initial paid session that you, you are discussing with them? Yeah, music lawyers are people too, so you can actually treat them as one. Oh, good to know. So, <laughs> so, so some bark, it's true, but some their bark is worse than their bite. But never, <laughs> never mind. You, you can definitely just. What I would do is um, to ask around in your network. Do you have a lawyer? Are you happy with this person? What do you think works with them? What do you think doesn't work with them? Get a few references, then call them up and and uh, try to do an intake and. It's always a very personal relationship, you know, with the artist and and, and and the lawyer because usually you work very closely together. So you must be, I mean, for me, that's important that I'm aligned with the people I work with. If, if I'm not, there's no, no, not going to be a long-term relationship with people. So you need to be able to look somebody in the eye and see, are we about the same thing? And that's fine. I mean, you can just go and, 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 and book an intake. Uh, some people will charge for that. Some People won't, but it really depends on the firm um, that you go to. And then what can be expected from a lawyer? That he or she is, of course, bluntly honest to you uh, in the sense that, that that they tell you whether or not it's a good deal or a good offer and they really have your best interest at heart. Mm-hmm. And if you're doing that when you don't have any, you know, contracts coming up or, or you mm-hmm. don't currently have a manager, is that an okay time to approach a lawyer? Yeah, for sure. I mean, why not? Because if the lawyer sees potential in you and in your music, um, he or she could actually help you to get to a manager or a publisher or a label and help you build your career. You have to start somewhere, of course. It's like um, coaches and, and sports. Uh, you can see somebody with a lot of talent, but no tournaments won or so. 
but then you can actually say, well, let's let's um, go further at the right and let's see what I can help you with. But it, it really depends on the lawyer. Uh, they come in, they, they do come in all shapes and forms. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. No, I, I think that's really useful actually, because I'm sure there's a lot of people feeling similar to how I was about not really knowing how to approach that and feeling a bit silly about calling someone up. But from what you say, it's, it's a totally normal thing to do and you shouldn't feel bad about that. And I guess if the lawyer sees potential in you, it's probably as much of a useful investment for them as well if you're going to get to somewhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if they bark at you, yeah, then you know that's not your match and you walk away. Definitely, definitely. Cool. Well, I think I'm sold on Donald's idea of finding a lawyer then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, cool. Uh, That's useful. So we have a few questions from our audience. And now you have touched on a few of these, but I'll, I'll just go through what we have. So One was from Sam Warren. So, you know, Sam. So the first part of this... Hi, Sam. (laughs) So the first part of this you already answered, which was uh, what is the law around sampling? And But the second part, she said, what is the worst that can happen when sampling a track? So Mm. do you you want to talk about that? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Well, Sam, what did you have in mind? <laughs> uh, and and the question is for whom? The worst for whom? Is it the worst for the one sampling or the worst for the person being sampled? I think the one sampling. She had a cheeky face when she said that. So, <laughs> oh, well, that's so hard to imagine. <laughs> but um, when when you sample a classic track, of course, um, that's a very tricky one, because classic tracks and iconic tracks they have gotten a lot of public image, I would say, and they have a commercial value, of course. Mm-hmm. And the original owner and, and owners of, of that track will want to be compensated for the use of their creation, of course. So what is the worst that can happen when you sample a classic track without permission is that you get sued and it gets taken down and you are ordered to pay damages. Um, yeah, what's the worst that could happen is that just like Sabrina Z. Lewis producers, who sampled the the Kraftwerk track, yeah, then you get into court and um, fight a battle for about 20 years. (laughs) Can't get get much worse than that, Sam. No, that sounds pretty horrible. So hopefully anyone that's got ideas, that really puts that out of your head. (laughs) So the next uh, question we had from Sarah Cross. So she had two really good questions. So I will just separate them up. So the Mm. first one, she said, is there a way on the market that allows you to keep the rights to a song when signing to a label, like a generic contract or something? Oh, that's, that, that's a very good question. It's also a twofold question. Generic contracts, there's no such thing as generic contracts. I mean, definitely not in my understanding. Contracts should be tailored and customized because no situation is the same. Um, no label is the same. No artist is the same. And the goal of a contract is not a can be similar, but it's hardly identical. So it should always be a tailored contract. That's one thing. So downloading stuff from the internet, it will get you that far, but I would be very, very cautious to to use that. Mm -hmm. And is there a way to keep all the rights um, when signing to a label? Yes, there is, but then it comes down to negotiating with the label. And then um, you can, most labels will ask for a a transfer of the rights. So that means that you lose 
if you're my label, then I transfer my rights to you. So I lose my rights and you become the rights holder. But I can also license them to you. And then it simply means that I keep my rights, mm -hmm. but I license them to you. I give you permission for the next 40 years to use my master. And then I get, I get to keep my rights. But it comes down to negotiating. Okay, cool. And, and I guess ideally you probably want a music lawyer to do that for you. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. And the second question she had was, what are the most important aspects to take care of when signing a record label? Mm, yeah. Making sure it's a good fit, that, that uh, first and foremost, really. Because um, what you see often is that people sign with the first label that they run into. Mm -hmm. And, oh, yeah, great, I have a record deal. And, and, and back in the 80s, that was perhaps a guarantee that you would become a star or that you would have a popular record. But nowadays, that, that is just not the case anymore. So the label needs to be a good match for the artist and vice versa because you want them to invest in you and they want, you want them to invest in your career. Mm -hmm. So vet them and uh, see what is the good, a good fit. And then when it comes to deal terms, it's, of course, the length of an agreement. Think of the artist uh, Jojo. You remember Jojo? Yeah. 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 She had like, um, she was like the one hit wonder. Yeah. I think she was like 12 or 13 or something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then disappeared. And then a few years ago, it was clear that she had signed a really nasty record deal. Oh, no. Yeah. And got stuck in that record deal for about eight years. But then that's eight crucial years that your career just gets, gets uh, stopped. Yeah. And that's very valuable time. And it's sometimes then very hard to recover after that. So sometimes people disappear from the music industry. And it's not because they've all become billionaires all of a sudden and say like, all right, I cashed in, bye-bye, going to do something else. Mm. But all, very often it's because they signed the wrong deals and they're simply stuck. Wow. Wow. So what, what are the terms? Yeah, the, the, the duration of an agreement, of course. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be stuck. Uh, think, uh, again, Prince, George Michael, um, who had at the time all signed record deals that, that were decades and decades, um, as a matter of speak. A very long, long durations. How can you terminate the agreement? Sometimes when you, when you get involved or engaged with a, with a label, you also want to know, how can you ter terminate the agreement? That's also important. Yeah. How can you get out of the agreement? What kind of guarantees are you giving? For example, if you if you sign a guarantee, I have not used any samples in my music, and then you are Sabrina Zitlur, and then you've used a sample by Kraftwerk which wasn't cleared. So that's and then you know what the result was: twenty years in court. My gosh! Yep, everyone remember that twenty years in court. This is <laughs> a big takeaway. <laughs> Royalties. Your, your royalties are, are, of course, the percentage is important, but not only that, also how are those percentages calculated and what are any costs that are deducted before you can actually receive your royalties. Because if, if somebody makes a, a 100,000 euro video mm -hmm. and those costs are out of your pocket, mm -hmm. yeah, then you won't, you won't be paid a single penny. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, I think you've mentioned quite a few main aspects there I mean uh, and they all sound really important but what I'm getting from this is you don't want to be doing this on your own or without a professional yeah so that's 
That's also a good takeaway. So I guess before wrapping up, I just wanted to ask you if you had any any resources for um, people that just want to know a bit more. Is is your book maybe a good place to start or uh, or something else? Yeah, the Dutch-speaking people can read my book. Rona, my co-host from the Music Wise podcast, and I are working on an English book. So we hope to have that out early next year. But in the meantime, there's definitely good books. Yeah, you mentioned Donald Passman. It's, it is very US-based, mm-hmm. so you have to take that into account. Not everything is 100% applicable, especially not to uh, continental Europe. One of the books I've been reading lately, it's Tori Amos's uh, Resistance. Mm-hmm. It's about her own journey as a songwriter. But in the book, she also gives a lot of examples of how the music industry works. And I thought it was absolutely fascinating. She's a great storyteller, uh, very clever and intelligent, of course, and gives a good gives a few good insights um, how this industry actually works. So I can highly recommend that. It's really well written, uh, which is like a fresh breath of air. The internet is, is, is a good place to, to have a look, but take it with a grain of salt because it, People are, of course, saying lots of things, and it's not always correct. But in terms of books, there there aren't too many books around, Mm -hmm. to be honest. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I think you've given us a couple there anyway to start with, which is great and useful. Thanks so much, Bindu, for your time. And that was, uh, yeah, hugely insightful for me and I'm sure for a lot of people. So, yeah, thank you for that. And have a great day. Thank you so much. I I hope people um, uh, get some takeaways from it. And uh, it was my pleasure to speak with you. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure they have. I'm sure they have. See you. Bye.